man, the song choices are perfect. It's amazing how <clears throat> uniting that can be. And uh, speaking of that, the, um, I know I don't normally teach with a stole or scarf, as some of you people would call it. That's a, um, a stole. I mainly do it so that the OCD people will pay attention to see if the, the bottom is the same on both ends. I know I'll have some of y'all's attention for that. The, um, uh, this really is a reminder to me and for all of us. A few years ago, we, we really focused on and taught through many of the traditions of the United Church around the world throughout history. And, uh, and this was just a great reminder during Advent, and, uh, and this was a cool Advent um, stole in and of itself, just a reminder to connect us to the fact that <clears throat> there is so much more to the church than just this local body. There is this great um, cosmic power, um, the bride of Christ spread throughout time and space. We're celebrating today, and especially during this time, the church around the world preparing itself to celebrate um, the coming of the Messiah. And, uh, and anything that reminds us of that and focuses in on that during this season is only good for us. Um, and on that note, during this time of Thanksgiving, um, I don't know about you, but this was an interesting year. One of our traditions at our home is we have a, a tablecloth um, that goes on the table at Thanksgiving, and whoever happens to be there for Thanksgiving um, uh, signs it and puts what they're thankful for on that. And so um, we've had that going for, I don't know, a decade or so now, maybe longer. And, and it's fun to go back and look at what people wrote you know, years ago or what the kids wrote you know, years ago when they were younger or whatever. But uh, um, this year, here's what struck me is that in addition to this kind of, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for my wonderful wife, for my amazing family, for my friends, um, for work, for this awesome church, uh, for you guys. Um, it is, uh, it, what struck me this year for some reason is more the, and um, there's a specific word here, the word is gestalt, uh, that references the fact that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so even when I look at my life and all these amazing things to be thankful for, when I add them up, the final result is bigger than all the things added together. And so much of that has to do with, with this, our church. And so I'm so grateful for you and for what this church means to me and to my family. And, uh, and so it's just a great place. I, I really do periodically feel bad when I'm in conversations with other lead pastors and they're, they're talking about the struggles that they're facing. And, uh, and um, man, I'm just so grateful that, that we, have, we're, we just seem to be so healthy in so many ways. So um, I'm grateful to God uh, for you all the time. Um, as we're jumping into the Advent season, we're going we're gonna to make a, a crossover from First Peter um, which is the, the letter we've been studying for most of the last year, um, Peter wanted those of us who were reading his letter to understand that Christians do face hard times. Um, the, the thought that Christians are always going to be healthy or that we're always going to have wealth or that things are always going to work out for us the way we want them to, um, you really kind of have to take a letter like First Peter and toss it and just not teach from it or, or pick and choose just a few little verses because it's exactly the opposite message. This this world can be a very unfriendly place for the followers of Jesus Christ. Um, and that that's something that he's predicting, hardships and persecution and suffering and even death. So the question is, psychologically, how do we tolerate this? How do we, how do we live in the midst of this? Why aren't we overcome with fear and anxiety and anger and, and, and all those things in our heart all the time? What's the, why do we do that? In fact, it may seem a little bit like we're kind of whistling past the graveyard to go straight from 1 Peter into Advent. Persecution, suffering, death, hope, peace, and joy. 
Hope, peace, and joy will be just as good. That's just, just, just fun. It's, it seems odd to make that such a big leap from that um, as we celebrate these things. So how do we even work in a season? How do we work in this Advent season when we're realizing that we're still learning to be a, um, a suffer-ready church, to lead suffer-ready lives? Well, the good news is these concepts are woven all through Peter. In fact, um, Peter makes it clear that these aren't contradictory to us. In many ways, they are why we can face the persecution or the challenges or the hardships or the trials or the temptations that we face. Think about peace, the candle that we lit today, peace. Um, So the the first Peter essentially opens with the phrase, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And the last verse of first Peter is, and peace to all who are in Christ. Not only is peace integral to suffering, but he, he brackets the entire conversation with peace on both ends to understand this is what it's all about. How about hope? If you remember, hope shows up quite a bit in First Peter, in the letter uh, of Peter, and uh, like the, the, we're supposed to have a ready reason for the hope that's within us at all times. So there's supposed to be a hope within us at all times, and that we're prepared to talk about that, that we have a reason for that, that it comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and the results of the death of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a great living hope that we have, even in the midst of suffering, maybe joy, even though that we get to hear in Peter's letter that we haven't been able to personally see Jesus Christ on earth, we love Him, and quote, though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, love, which Peter emphasizes several times, our love for God, our instructions to love one another, and the power of love to heal, and the way that love covers a multitude of sins. So these very ideas that we celebrate during Advent were woven all through First Peter. Even as we celebrate them, though we recognize we're not fully realizing them. At times, for all of their wonder, they seem like a pale reflection of what we can imagine. We get little tastes of it. We sit somewhere in peace, tranquil, and, and, and we get to experience just a tiny taste of what it would be to live in a place ruled by peace. We get to experience that. Maybe we look, we, we see our, um, you know, you, you, you come in and see your husband playing with your children doing something with them, and you're filled with a sense of love, of overwhelming love for Him. We get these little tastes, but they're just pale reflections of what it's like when that's the norm, when those, those experiences are what is there all the time. This is, a, this is a great picture that He has for us, and why we celebrate this is to remember this. In the meantime, we wait. This is the theme of our Advent series in 2021, and just to create a little bit less peace for you, it struck me that 2021 is as close to 1980 as 1939 was. Just, just, just let that sit with you for a few minutes. All right, so 
We've been waiting for so long. 1 Peter 4, 7-17 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. <coughs> the end of all things are at hand, Peter said 2,000 years ago. Or maybe what he says in, in chapter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But it seems like it's been longer than just a little while. We'll get to this when we get to 2 Peter later this year, Lord willing. This is one of the main themes of 2 Peter, is this waiting theme and what it looks like and why do we have to wait. But I want us to talk about the way we wait and what we're waiting for and, and how we're going to wait. But in order to do that, I feel like we should go back and really unpack this idea. Really unpack what we're talking about when we say this and, and dive into it a little more fully. We were inspired when we came to this concept and um, when we started, I should say, looking at the concept of waiting um, for Advent this season. It was really inspired by a scene um, in The Chosen. And, uh, and there's a lot of stuff it's a scene that we've shown once before when we were way back um, in First Peter to teach about him, uh, to teach about Peter. But just to have this, this understanding, the, the, for many of you, this was my, for the first scene I ever saw. I saw this in an advertisement. The first scene I ever saw from The Chosen. I'd really love to encourage you. One of my passions when I teach, if you'll remember, especially like going through the book of John or Daniel, that I really want to make the, the passage come alive. Like you can imagine it, you can see it, feel it, taste it, smell it, what's going on in that passage. And, and so I really do, um, I don't know, covet the ability of the chosen, um, the creators of the chosen to put that on screen in some really cool ways. If you've not watched it, this may be a great season for you to go and watch these, to watch the chosen, um, to, to see some of the grittiness and the, the real emphasis on the real person who Jesus Christ, with the life he really experienced while he was here. This is one of my favorite scenes, and, and I want you to, there's a few things I loved about it. When I saw this scene, I knew, okay, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to have to now watch these. Um, there's a couple of things. I, I, you might notice I was inspired very much so uh, by Jesus. When you see um, what's going to happen, it's the miraculous catch of fish. And, and you can imagine in the smile that Jesus has over and over again in this scene that Jesus is, uh, that he, in the beginning of this scene, that Jesus just prayed something like, you know what, Father, give him some fish. And then as their boat begins to sink, Jesus is looking to heaven's going like, of course you did. <laughs> right, right, of course, right. I said a few fish, this is how you answer that prayer. And I think it's really cool. But the thing I want to draw your attention to, and I have to show the whole thing or it's not worth it, <coughs> the um, draw attention to is Peter's response to the miracle that he experiences here when he's suddenly awareness of who Jesus is. So if you could run that. A little farther out. I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right. That's your word. Well, 
brother and the baptizer <laughs> you are the lamb of god yes i am depart from me i am a sinful man you don't know who i am the things i've done don't be afraid simon i'm sorry we, we've waited for you for so long we believe but my faith how sorry <laughs> Lift up your head, fisherman. What do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. There we go. The emotion, the emotion that you get to experience as you watch that, and the, that you can imagine Peter experiencing. I love the fact that the director so correctly has Peter say, not, I've been waiting for so long, but we've been waiting for so long. This is the power, part of the power of this message is that it's hard for us to wrap our brains around how desperately the people of Israel had longed for their Messiah, how long they had been waiting. Maybe we should apply that emotion to the shepherds, that when the shepherds, when the angels appear to the shepherds, and the shepherds are, are in awe, and the, and the angels, the, the armies of God appear themselves and cry out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom He is pleased. That this would have been their response as well. We've been waiting for so long. We believed, but... That, that emotion, that, the power of that, the Hebrew people had been waiting for so long. The, they were waiting for an anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one. What in, in, the, in the Greek is Christus, the Christ. 
Listen to this. In Isaiah, for a thousand years they had been waiting for the fulfillment of Isaiah's teachings. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. How do you increase peace forever? How do you do that? It's not just the lack of conflict. There's a Peace is itself a thing that will grow and increase under his leadership. On the throne in David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They had longed for their Messiah under the boot of the Assyrians, the boots of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and at the time of Jesus, the Romans. Things had been so bad. They named their daughters Mary, Mara, bitter. They named their sons Jesus and John. God save us. They were broken in constant conflict with no rest from it. They just wanted to be left alone and no one would leave them alone. They wanted shalom more than anything else and they knew that only God could provide it. And say where they were looking for these chosen ones. And we gain, we gain great comfort from the chosen one stories, by the way. This is, this is hardwired into us. As C.S. Lewis and others have said, this chosen one concept, God hardwired it into all of our hearts to love this picture. In fact, in looking, doing some research on the chosen one, I found an extremely helpful website that has 45 signs that you may be the chosen one. Okay? Um, and I can't go through all 45 of them, so I just picked a few of them. Um, be looking for words for phrases and people, what people say to you, be looking for phrases like, it isn't your time yet. That's a good sign that you may be the, especially if that comes from a voice from the heavens or a prophet, especially a blind prophet. Um, if your origins are just too mysterious or too humble for you to ever account for anything, that's a good sign you may be a chosen one. Um, if your friend group is made of several people who are clearly sidekicks, if you think about, think about your friend group, okay, you can see it, right? Um, if you randomly develop new abilities just when they're needed. If that's something you've experienced many times in your life, when just when you needed to be able to do something you could, you may be a chosen one. Um, one fun one was, if you can pick up or maybe draw a weapon forth that no one else can, that's a really good sign. So if, if there's like a, a sword that's in a stone and only you can draw it, that, that, or you're the only one who could pick up the hammer, it, it may, you may be the chosen one. Just... Just helping you out here. It was interesting to me that given our theme, that number 22 in the list was, it just kind of feels like everyone's been waiting for you. <laughs> How vital are these to us? They wrap up in everything. All of our epic stories involve this idea. Now, you won't catch all of these. Some of you will catch some, and some of you will catch others. Largely, that will probably be age-gradiated. But there's some examples of chosen ones. Mufasa means the chosen one, for example. So there's one. Another one? Some of you know these people. Some of you don't. Another one? These chosen ones? Over and over again. I couldn't believe how many chosen ones there are. And that hasn't changed over time. It's not like there's only old ones like that one from the 80s and new ones and others all over the place, of course, <laughs> that had to make the list somewhere in there. And then, good for some of you, the good children of the 80s, some of the more modern ones, you recognize, chosen ones, 
Keep going. These are very key to our concepts of heroes and what they are to us. This idea of a chosen one, and this, listen, I don't know how long I could have continued to pull up examples. These are people, these aren't just examples of people who are kind of the chosen one. These are all examples of people who are called the chosen one. It's all through our literature and all through our, our movies and our experiences. The, this idea that there's a lost king, there's a promised peace, and, and, and that, that eventually this peace is coming to us. And listen, Peace doesn't seem to be something we're really good at as human beings. Before World War I, the idea of a world war was unthinkable. And, and we had to explain to one of my children this week, World War I wasn't called World War I until World War II. It was just called the Great War, and the war to end all wars. Except it didn't, did it? World War II was unthinkable until it happened. A world war right now is unthinkable, isn't it? That doesn't seem to be a good predictor of whether or not it's going to happen. We just don't seem to be very good at this stuff. Where is this peace that we've been waiting for so long? Are you still looking to humans to provide it? Peter said it had been so long that he'd been waiting. That, that's watching that scene inspired us. Are we starting to understand the longing that Peter had? Could we, have we gotten to the place where we will start saying, we, we've been waiting for so long? How long had they been waiting? Well, the first prophecy of the Messiah, the anointed one that I could come to, was in Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Remember the great scene from uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion, and the opening footage when Jesus is praying in the garden, and Satan is there, and a, a snake starts slithering out from Satan's robes towards Jesus, as Jesus is on his face, as drops of blood is coming down from him. And as the snake nears to him, he, he stands up, in strength, and as the snake gets right to him, he stomps on its head. This is the imagery created here, is that the offspring of that woman someday would bruise the head of Satan. Young earth creationists would say that the human race was waiting for the offspring of Eve for about 4,000 years before he came. Recently, Dr. William Lane Craig, another Bible scholar, but who leans towards an old earth interpretation of Scripture, published the book, The Historical Adam. In it, he says that he believes that Adam was a member of Homo heidelbergensis, somewhere between 200,000 years and 700,000 years ago is when Adam and Eve would have been alive. The divide between the old earth faithful interpretation and the young earth faithful interpretation, though, is merely a biblical hobgoblin, some of you, uh, you remember Paul saying that last week? We need to use the word hobgoblin more in sermons. I'm paying attention. All right, so, so we had, they had been waiting somewhere between 4,000 years and 700,000 years. Those are both long time. A long time to be waiting. So what were they waiting for? Well, they were waiting for that coming king, that, that everlasting father, that prince of peace. 
Someone anointed. That's what the Hebrew word for Messiah means, what the Greek word Christus means, anointed, chosen one. Um, oil was used for all kinds of things back in this era, in, in that part of the world, um, just like they are today, kind of like essential oils are today. They're essential, in fact, exactly like essential oils are today and many times. Medical uses, comfortable uses for comfort were a big part of it, but so was a symbolic aspect. Elevating from a legal status would involve anointing. If you were a slave and you were made free, often that meant you were anointed with this new legal status. Um, uh, uh, the transfer of property could involve it. The betrothal could involve it. Um, or, um, uh, in this case, in fact, we use it at the church to anoint ministers for the gospel. Um, licensure, which is not a biblical concept, nor is ordination, they're both, they're both state concepts. They're government political concepts. And so what we do when we um, ordain somebody or when we license somebody is we use the biblical picture of anointing them with oil. Um, to anoint them for their new role as a minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel, a servant of God's people. In this case, oil is being used to symbolize probably the new king is the idea. This anointing was to confer upon the king the spirit of the Lord, the Ruach Yahweh, the spirit of God. The support, strength, and wisdom of God be in and upon you was part of the blessing. Some were sprinkled, some were doused. But it seemed to have been intentionally in the shape of a wreath for a king, a wreath like a victorious wreath, or the shape of an X for a priest. Why were they looking for an anointed one? So it had been promised to them. Jeremiah 23 and 33, but I'm going to read from 23, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Isaiah, there's a lot of Isaiah passages about this coming king, this Messiah. Isaiah 11, 1-5 says this, shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes with what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. According to Judaism 101, the webpage, in the era of the Messiah, here's what they predict, which they believe has not come. In the era of the Messiah, the anointed one, the whole world will recognize the Jewish God as the one and only true God, and the Jewish religion as the only true religion. There will be no murder, robbery, competition, or jealousy. Sacrifices will continue to be brought into the temple, but limited to Thanksgiving sacrifices, because there will be no further need for forgiveness sacrifices. So many of the things the Jewish people were and are waiting for in the Messiah Many of the web pages that I looked at, the rabbinical pages and other teachings focused first when it says, what are they waiting for? What are the Jews waiting for in a Messiah? Kind of what made me sad was very many, many, many of them started with the phrase, not God, just man. To delineate themselves clearly from the teachings of Christianity, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the God-man. It's intriguing, we'll read that passage again at the end of the sermon, when, when the, the coming Messiah in Isaiah is actually referred to as 
the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. And so because that phrase involves the word God, they remove it. as it, Well, that clearly can't be messianic then. It must be something else because we've already decided that the Messiah can't be God. He's just a man. Versus challenging their thinking. The deep disappointment is what I read over and over again on these pages. Was the deep disappointment of the people who have not seen Jesus as Messiah. They're looking for a descendant of David. A great political leader. Someone who is well versed in Jewish law. A charismatic leader. A great military leader who will win battles for Israel. And a great judge making righteous decisions. See, they're looking for someone to solve the external peace problem. The external one. Here's what struck me about that. If you're going to solve the peace problem on earth, you're going to have to do something about all the humans. You're going to have to scour the humanity off the planet and start over with a new earth, under a new heaven, with a new kingdom, which is exactly what is prophesied that Jesus will do when He comes back. Because if you're going to create peace, you're going to have to remake humanity. But that's not what they're looking for. They think someone's going to come and just create. They're going to be such a great leader that people, human beings, are just going to go to the peace place on their own. But what about a peace that would come from within rather than from without? Maybe it's an internal peace, not an external peace that Jesus came to accomplish the first time around. Listen to the way they they focus on this. This is key to me as they're looking for the Messiah. Here's one of the things that Judaism 101 said. It has been said that in every generation a person is born with the potential to be the Messiah. If the time is right for the Messiah, messianic age within that person's lifetime, then that person will be the Messiah. If that person dies before he completes the mission of the Messiah, then that person is not the Messiah. Though some believe God has set aside a perfect, a specific date for the Messiah, most authorities, listen to this part, most authorities suggest that the conduct of mankind will dictate the coming of the Messiah. This felt like a weight to me that I didn't know what to deal with. Listen to this. Here's some example suggestions from rabbis as to what would need to happen in order for the Messiah to come. If Israel repented, all of them, for just one day. That's all that has to happen. Israel will repent for one day. This one strikes me as the most insidious. If Israel observed Shabbat properly, just once. Ironically, some of them said twice. Why not? You know what struck me as so insidious about that is that that feels almost possible, doesn't it? It feels like maybe, maybe somehow we could get everybody together and just agree, listen, I don't care if you were to do Shabbat any other time, just this one time, right? It's high attendance Shabbat. We're all going to do it on the same time. We're just, we could just get everybody together and do it, then we could make it happen. And the burden of that. How about this one? If there were a generation totally innocent. Yeah, good luck with that one. Sadly, some of them were negative too. If there was a generation that totally lost hope, then he would come. That may be possible. Isaiah 25, 9 says, It will be said on this day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Makes me sad whenever I hear about it. Several years ago when we were in Israel, we had a lecture. A young lady was doing a lecture in a, in a museum area where they've already reconstructed everything that need, is needed to be used in the temple. All the priestly garments and all the, all the 
the stuff that needs to be in the temple so that when the new temple is built, they can just start right in with the new sacrifices and they can get going. And at the end of her talk, she actually almost broke down, like very sadly saying, sadly, we have not yet earned God letting us build a new temple yet. We're just not righteous enough. I just, it just, the, the, the gap there that breaks my heart. Several weeks ago, uh, Redfern uh, referenced a type of art, a piece of art that you see um, in Jerusalem when you're there. Um, the art indicates the pain of waiting, how one can have a broken heart just in waiting. Um, it's an imagery. These are, these are three photographs of it. It's an imagery that you do see all over Jerusalem. It's a picture of a bride alone at the western wall. She's waiting on the Messiah, her bridegroom, to come. And she's brokenhearted, waiting there on the wall, waiting for her Messiah, for her groom to come. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Can you put the picture, the last picture back up? Here's what struck me in the pain of this. What if she believes her groom hasn't come and it's her fault? What is the weight of that? I'm just not good enough. I'm just not righteous enough. I'm just not worthy enough. I'm not deserving enough. It struck me as just a horrible way to present God. We just, we just uh, sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Um, man, what a, what a great hymn. Charles Wesley wrote it in 1744. as a poem first. I looked it up real quick. The last, one of the last lines we sang was this, By your all-sufficient merit, raise us to your glorious throne. Whose merit? His merit. His all-sufficient merit. If you're still waiting on humanity to create peace, to earn the coming of the groom, it's time to give up on your denial. Based on past and present performance, I think your odds stink. You would rely, you would bet on humanity only if humanity was the only bet in town. And it isn't. There's a prince of peace. We're not even good at waiting. For comfort seeking and often lazy race, it's amazing how often we think faster is better, or at least more efficient is better. I actually grew up in this era. I grew up, I remember when the first McDonald's came to Nacogdoches, Texas. But you know what's wild? You know what it didn't have at first? A drive through. You still went, and you went inside, and you ordered, and then you sat down and ate. It just The fast part was the fact there was no waiter or waitress serving you. It wasn't better food. It wasn't even necessarily cheaper food. It was just fast food. And we thought that was a good step, right? But then we realized we just couldn't be sitting around waiting for our food. We couldn't be sitting around by that aisle. We, we needed to be in our cars waiting for the food, right? It just wasn't fast enough. We needed to be able to get in and get out without even having to get out of our vehicles so that we could get our food and eat it in our suburban the way God intended, right? That was the, that was the, then we reached the apex of humanity, right? When we could rush through the good things. We're terrible at rest. We're terrible at waiting. Um, God warns us about this again in Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 15, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And 
We will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. The implication is, you try to out-hurry the world, it'll catch you. That's not an advantage the church has over the world, is hurrying, resting, waiting, remembering. That's our advantage. While we wait, we rest. We learn to be at peace. We learn to trust. In the end, when it comes to the return of Jesus, we don't have any choice but to wait anyway. It's not like we do believe that something we do is what's going to cause Him to come back. That if we're just righteous enough or perform enough or, or do something well enough, that that'll, He'll be inspired somehow by the human race to want to come back. That is not Christian teaching. He'll come back at the time set in advance. What is it like to be desperately waiting? I know, I know for young people sometimes this can be especially hard. It was for me when I was younger. I remember thinking, um, God, please don't come back until, and there would be something there, until after I graduate, until after I get married, until after I have sex, until after I have children, until after I get to travel. Okay, I will, I will even confess that there was a point at which I prayed that God wouldn't come back until all three of the Lord of the Rings movies had come out. That was, a, that was like, just, can you just wait a little, just another year, won't be that big a deal, right? I clearly wasn't waiting with the right attitude. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Let the voice of my pleas, for, into the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he'll redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. To hear this passage unpacked more in depth, you can go back to last week when Paul did that. He unpacked this. The psalmist here is waiting for God's mercy and crying from the depth like a drowning man. He says to him, I know you're tempted, God, to keep track of my sins and make your decision to rescue me based on that. But please don't. Forgive and when you forgive, that inspires me to be devoted to you all the more. But I think the key passage here I want to draw your attention to is how he talks about waiting. I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Not many of us get to have this experience of being a watchman. Maybe a few of you have been in the military have gotten to experience it. We talked about it even in the, the lens of being in a combat zone of waiting. But for me, what it brings to me is, is memories. I go every year, uh, most years, to, uh, to, on a survival camp out. In, in, in November, and it is usually very, very cold at night. We don't have sleeping bags, we don't have tents, we don't have pillows, um, any of that kind of stuff. And we don't have hardly any food, and we're out there for about four days, three or four days. And I'll tell you, sometime around 3 a.m. when you wake up for about the 15th time um, during the night because you're cold, and you wake up and you look over towards the east, and you're just thinking, please, would you rise? Son, would you please come up? God, please bring the sun up because you're not going to get any relief till then. It's just going to get colder and colder and colder right up until the moment that the sun begins to break. But up until that moment, it's just going to get worse and you already can't sleep and you're just desperate. Please, for the love of you, God, make the sun rise. Actually, this last time at about 5 a.m., I wish I'd gotten up a little bit earlier. At about 5 a.m., I started taking a few pictures Boy, I tell you what, that mist is cold, 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 five o'clock in the morning out there in November. And then the next, just a few minutes later, I take another one. And a few minutes later, I took another one to show 
that as the sun is coming up and the encouragement that that gives to your heart that finally, finally, the watchman is waiting. I've been here for so long. Would you please just rise? That's the tone of waiting that the Bible gives us. It's hard to wait like that for a long time, though. For at least a couple thousand years, we've been waiting for Him to come back. Hopefully eagerly anticipating Him. And I don't know about you, but I sense, I sense in Peter's words in, in, the, in the TV show when he drops to his knees and says, we've been waiting, I sense the doubt. We've been waiting. We believed, but, but not really. Isn't it easy for us to get there? It's easy for us to get to the place where we go, I mean, maybe we misinterpreted you. Maybe we didn't understand your words. Maybe you're not coming back. Maybe we've missed it somehow. I think that's going to be the response to his saints, of his saints when he shows back up is that we're going to say, oh my gosh, we're waiting for so long. We're waiting so long. This picture of the watchman I think is a good one, but I think another one is good that, that John and I talked about um, on the podcast this week that struck us, and that was the way that a child waits for Christmas morning. Impatiently. Asking every day. Right? Can I open presents now? Can I open presents now? I think it's funny that sometimes we have this nasty habit of, of we, we wrap up these presents and we put them under the tree and then we tell the kids not to obsess over them. Yeah, that's going to work out really, really well, right? Listen, the reason, instead tear that into a teachable moment. You put those gifts under the tree and use, your children, you use that opportunity to teach your children about what it means to wait with a longing heart. It's not Christmas Day yet. Christmas is the longest, December is the longest month of the year. It's like 900 days long. At least from the moment the Christmas trees goes up and the gifts go out, there's like 900 days until December 25th. And that's exactly, I think, the right mindset is to, is to, is to are we're supposed to be waiting like that, eagerly anticipating, hoping for this day to come and learning what it means to live in peace until it does. Next week, we're going to look at some more key passages about waiting and introducing you to some people who are great examples of waiters. Man, they're, they're awesome at it. They, they were waiting for a long, long time. For now, the goal is for us to be at peace while we wait, to learn to accept the peace that He gives us. So if you'll stand with me, we'll have our time that we call our time of invitation. <clears throat> During this time and a moment as we begin to sing, you can sing or you can pray or you can deal with another relationship in the room the way you need to, or you can come and pray here or you can head to the corner and pray with somebody. Um, you can make a commitment in your heart before God, just listen to what the Spirit has for you, or you can sing. And if, you've, if you want someone to pray with you, we'd love to do that with you this morning. If you've already been through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can come let us know about that as well this morning. For now, I want to read. go back and read again from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Come, let us wait together.